Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that ye may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven word, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him, just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honour such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Jesus. He 
He sets a great example for service because he, he, he said he knew that the world's call was far better than this, but he prepared to stay. He said the Lord's got work for me and he wants to get on with it, knowing that Christ would be there all along to supply his every need. My uh, previous two messages were based on a wonderful section uh, in, in the previous part of chapter 2. In just a few lines it describes the absolute humiliation of Christ. And then we said that it, it swept all the way up through his ascension to, to see him uh, sat at the right hand of God with absolute glorification. And so he's there now even in the highest heavens. So but today it's about God working in me. And I want to, want to begin by explaining this apparent contradiction, this uh, paradox. It seems to say both that we do this saving work and God does it as well. So, so I'd like to separate those two out and look at them individually. I want to speak about God's activity in saving his elect people, yeah? But then I want to also pick out from this passage some pointers uh, to help us live the life that God wants as well. But firstly, we need to address this thing. We firstly need to settle uh, this, this, uh, this apparent contradiction. So, what does this word salvation mean? You might think, well, we know what salvation is. Well, maybe not, because in the Bible, it's used in different ways. So, um, you know, it's used uh, to describe that moment when we're first delivered from sin. We call that salvation. We, sometimes in the Bible, when someone's rescued from some kind of trouble in it, that's being saved as well. And then there's the, there's the other sense of it, which is the, the whole process from conversion all the way to, to glory is described as salvation as well. Well, I think it's that last one that is in use uh, here in verse 12. So specifically, it's about faith and words throughout the life of a believer. It's about suffering with Christ in our afflictions. It's about being conformed to the image of our Lord and Saviour. So, that being so, we're still left with this issue of salvation being said to involve our efforts, but also the efforts of God. So, which is it? Well, it is both. What I mean is, that we, we really do stuff. We actually do stuff. You do things God wants, and that pleases God. It's acceptable to Him. If it's done in Christ's name. So we, we, we said to do the stuff. We're not, we're not puppets. We do stuff. And yet verse 13 makes it clear. God is behind it all. And I mean all. Now verse said God, God, the verse said God puts it in us. Both to will and to work. That means he gives us the will the desire to do the thing in the first place and he also gives us the ability to do it so that we can say it's still all of God 
I'd like to look at verse, uh, 12, verses 12 and 13 uh, again, uh, please. And you'll see these terms, these terms, work out, verse 12. We work out our salvation, it says. Then in verse 13 it says, God works in. He works in us, in other words. Whatever it is, works in us, and then it works out of us. Okay. <clears throat> I like, uh, I really like freshly ground coffee, you know. I couldn't function up here today without that cup of coffee. So I stick in the, and I love my coffee machine, and I stick in the water, and I stick in the, the ground coffee, and about 10 minutes later, out comes this perfect product, my cup of coffee. So, it might help to, to think of this working in, working out, uh, in a similar way. God puts in you the will to do things required. He then adds the ability to do them. And then these things come together in you and you produce works appropriate for someone who God is dealing with. Now when I, whenever I talk about this mystery of God's sovereignty and man's duty, I always feel I'm treading on thin ice. Because, it's, well it's a mystery, so I'm bound to get wrong somehow. It's a mystery. If I put too much emphasis on God's work in us, all the emphasis there, I'll then neglect the abundance of exhortation in the scriptures uh, about how we should live, how we should think, speak and act. But on the other hand, if I put too much emphasis on uh, our behaviour, then someone somewhere will want to call me a heretic. People who think we should only concentrate on God's sovereignty. So he, he can't win. Now this is why in my preaching, I try to let the emphasis of the Bible dictate what I say. I try to keep closely to the scriptures and let them speak. If anyone's got a problem, I can say, well, take it up with you know, the author, not me. So I, I do that even if it upsets people and even if it contradicts things that I've, I've believed myself for years. And I can tell you folks, that's happened a lot. The Bible's, the Bible's had to rectify my understanding on lots of things. I've always, uh, I've always vigorously avoided this idea of cooperating with God in salvation. It's always horrified me, cooperation with God. And I'll tell you why. I sat and thought, why is it, what is it about that that I hate? And I realised it's um, it's how I it's how I interpret it. If I say we cooperate with God, it will give the impression that some guys are saying, "Okay, Lord, I've decided, I've decided to work with you on this, and so let's get this salvation thing done. You do, you know, you do your bit, I'll do mine, and then it will all be uh, finished in the end." <laughs> well, understood in that way, it should glorify us. Absolutely. First, we can't just decide to go along with what God wants. Sinners are dead. Dead in their sin. If God doesn't initiate salvation in a person, that person will never call on God. 
partly of God. It's only partly of God. Well, AC Mitchell being an evangelical church, I don't think anyone here will, will contradict me on this, that we believe that salvation is all of God. So that's why you won't hear me use the word cooperate much in these things. Um, if you wanted to argue that it's a valid word, you might say, well, God operates, yeah? Uh, he gets us to operate as well. So you might say, okay, we, we can't operate. But you can see why I really avoid the word. Yeah, we can run into trouble, can't we? And, and, we, and so we hit a brick wall with this mystery. When we do things for God, He Himself says in the Word that it's us who do them. Right? But He also describes the Word, all our works, as having their origin and their power and their fulfillment in Himself. I came across this quote by a guy called Richard Mellick in this New American Commentary, and this is how he tries to explain things. Human energy, that's our efforts, right? Could never accomplish the work of God. Agreed. Yet God did not accomplish his purposes without it. That's also true. So there's the mystery then. Like I said, what I want us to do, I want us to, to split this, this thing into, into two. So first, we're going to look at God's work in us. God's work in us. Last week I brought to your attention a word, therefore, therefore, very important word. We have a similar word here at the beginning of verse 13. It says for. First word is for, in other words, because. Okay, because. Uh, so here it's used to say, do this because God does this. Let these things come out of you. Because God has put them in you. So what does it mean then for God to work in us? What does it mean for to work in us? Well, there's our will. There's our will. God plants in us the desire to obey Him. At some point in the believers' history in their lives, uh, they became, uh, we, we became one of the houses of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. And he was that efficient cause of us putting our trust in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit doesn't move out. He is a permanent resident in your heart. And so this godly influence which began at your conversion continues your whole life. He gives you new desires. He motivates you to do the things that previously you had no interest in. You avoid stuff you used to like. So note that in our text, it's not only the desire to do these things that God plants in us, but everything, everything that's needed for us to carry them out. Everything. I try to keep this as, as, as straightforward as, as I can. So when I say everything, I'm going to break that down into two things. Two things that God provides. Well, firstly, um, God gives us abilities, doesn't he? 
So when he wants us to have a certain attitude or perform some work, he enables us to do it. And these people are given to different people uh, at different times. They're also given in different amounts, aren't they? Uh, these talents. So you might have someone with zero ability, you might have someone with a partial ability, and you might have someone who's accomplished in, in, in a certain thing. And in fact, that's one of the ways God, uh, that's how God uses, uh, that's one of the things God uses to direct us in life. This is how he directs us, or one of the ways, anyway. He closes doors. But, I mean, if you're, if you're absolutely rubbish at mathematics, then you're not going to go and apply for a job as a maths teacher, yeah? So we, we, we turn and we, we go in a different direction. Um, so the point is, if God means us to go and do something for him, he'll give us the ability to do it. But he, he doesn't just give us abilities. He, gives, he, he also arranges uh, circumstances. The circumstances. Now, of course, he chooses... Uh, he chooses when we'll be born. He, he chooses where we're going to live. He chooses whether we'll have a family or not. And he arranges the world around us in such a way as to give us an opportunity to carry out his work. We sometimes use that figure, don't we? Uh, God opening doors, closing doors. Yeah. And this arrangement of circumstances is also used by God to, to guide us in the Christian life. So there are three factors in play here, God working in us. We've got the, first, the will, he gives us the, the desire to do something. Then there's the ability to do it, and then there's the opportunity to carry it out. If one of those is missing, the action can't take place if one of those elements is missing. For example, I might have a desire to be a well-leading theologian, someone who leave a significant and lasting legacy for the Church of God for years to come. I might have the desire. I might also have the opportunity, like the university doors are open to me, I can go and use their libraries, I can take exams, maybe pass them. So, I've got to I might have a desire there, I might have all the opportunities available to me, but there's just one problem. I'm not clever enough. That's the problem. I'm not clever enough to do that. God hasn't given me that exceptional mind that can grasp all these theological issues and then add to them. He just hasn't given me that talent. Had he wanted me to uh, take that course in life, he'd have given me that exceptional ability. He wants to be somewhere else. He wants to be standing here today, believers or not. Well, you believers, you, um, you, should, you should remember God has a plan for each one of us and He's continually, continually worked in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. His good pleasure, it says. His good pleasure. Well, all things which occur are because of the good pleasure of God. Now last week you heard me say that uh, everything's done by us or by God is for His glory. You can say, uh, 
as Graham was saying the other week, quoting that uh, catechism, um, it's for our happiness as well, yeah? Uh, things God does for us, it's for our happiness as well. But we'd agree that that's the ultimate purpose in all these things. Uh, God's dealing with men is his own glory. That's the highest purpose. So, his good pleasure dictates what he does, and what he does brings in glory. So we've, um, we've considered a little bit about God's work in us, giving us a desire and an ability, arranging things in our lives. But what about our work? Well, it said here God, it said here God works in us, and it said we work out those things. Work out your salvation, it says. Now, the term work out, it, it does reflect the the Greek, uh, the, the uh, original Greek of this Bible, it does reflect that very well. It's maybe not entirely helpful to us in our day. If I ask you to work out something, go and work this out, and you'd say, oh, he wants me to do some kind of puzzle or something. It might be better if you think of this as outworking instead of working out. Outworking makes perhaps a little bit more sense. So it's talking about the outworking of our faith what we should produce very naturally as Christians. These people belong to Jesus as we do. And uh, that relationship we have with the Lord, it's meant to influence us in our daily lives. It's, it's meant to influence how we think throughout the day. It's meant to influence how we speak to other people. And it's meant to influence how we behave. It's meant to, uh, it's meant to guide us to do those things God wants and avoid the things he hates. If we're Christians, we're expected to act like him. That's the point. Well, our reading today includes a number of pointers uh, which Paul gives us about this uh, Christian life. And in the second half of what we read, it's from verse 19 onwards, it talks there about, it talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And it talks about characteristics of these fellows, which we do well to copy. There's, there's a fair few in there that I've dug out. I've found ten, which means that we have to go through them pretty quickly. So the first one is in verse 14. It tells us in everything we do, do it without complaining, without arguing. Verse 14. The Hebrews in the Bible having been the object of such a great and powerful deliverance from Egypt, they managed still to grumble against Moses and, by extension, grumble against God himself. You could say that we have been delivered from Egypt, if you like. We've been delivered from the Egypt of this world. And so we need to be extra careful learn from them that we shouldn't turn mom when we do our Christian duty. Number two is in verse 15. And verse 15, it encourages us to be blameless and innocent. We're in the same boat as the Philippians and every other congregation who's ever existed. We live right in the middle of a world that's just perverted. Our Bible 
calls the people of this world twisted. He says they're all twisted. <laughs> and you may say, oh no, oh so and so, she's got a heart of gold, she'll do anything for anyone. Okay, I bet she does. But you know what? Day in and day out, your so and so blatantly violates God's holy standards, no matter how much you love them. We need to make sure that we remember that and not let their behaviour go on from us. Number three, the same verse continues uh, to remind us uh, we're like lights, we're like lights shining in the darkness of this world. We should stand out. I know we already stand out in this world because uh, we don't live like them. Um, they think we're weirdos or snobs. But what this means is our behaviour is to be so good that they can't really say anything bad about us. They see in us some kind of light, and even if they can't understand it. Number four, we get to verse 16, where it comes to hold fast the word of life. This word of life is a belief system. It centres around Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we're hoping to hold these truths tightly. And I think it's fair to say we can apply that to our Bibles. We can apply that to the whole Bible. Whatever truths we learn from the Scriptures should be held in heart and treasured. And what's more, it's expected that we want to share the truth that we hold with, with other people. There we can. Number five, uh, Paul ends this section, verse uh, 18, asking them to copy him. He had feelings of gladness and joy. They produced in him gladness and joy. So he suggests that they be glad and rejoice with him. One of the hymns by a guy called Horatius Bonner, or Bonar, goes. Rejoice and be glad. The Redeemer has come. Go look on his cradle, his cross and his tomb. We, friends, above all people, have plenty of cause to be joyful and glad in the Holy Spirit. Number six. Um, we read that Paul promises the church he planned to send uh, Timothy to whenever he could. He obviously has a very high opinion of Timothy, his protege. He, he compares him to other people he knew. And Paul says, these are the people, we don't know exactly who, who they are. They're nowhere near as selfless as Timothy. This young minister of the gospel exceeded everyone else Paul knew in putting Jesus and the brethren first. What, what, what a thing. You may remember uh, quite recently when we were in back in verse 3, a couple of weeks ago, it told us to count other people more important than ourselves. Number 7, we also see Paul in verse 22 refer to Timothy's service with him in the course of the Gospel. If you look a bit further on, Paul uses a similar term for Epaphroditus. He says, calls him a fellow worker. Paul's relationship with Timothy is described as like um, that of a father and son. Such was the closeness. And their love for each other, you see, was based on their common love for 
and a zeal to serve him in the furtherance of the gospel. Number 8, in, in verse 25 now, when it mentions Epaphroditus, he's also called a fellow soldier. Fellow soldier. Paul wants us to know those in the business of the gospel should think of themselves not only as servants, but also soldiers. Now we might turn up to church on this lovely day, and we might feel pretty relaxed, and we've suffered no hostility from the world. The authorities haven't hindered us from getting here today. It's all very lovely, but we shouldn't forget we're in a war. We should not forget we are in a war. We fight daily against sin in ourselves, against a devil who constantly wants to take us down. And we're heavily outnumbered, folks, by the people in this world who oppose the things of God. We're at war. Well, number nine, Paul acknowledged how this Epaphroditus ministered to his need, just as we're to minister to each other's needs. Paul says his messenger nearly died in the course of his ministry. I don't know, could have been exhaustion, heart trouble, uh, maybe he, um, maybe he uh, caught a, a virus because he was working too hard. He nearly died. And the Philippines couldn't all be there for Paul. Remember, Philippi is sort of right over there, and Paul's in prison in Rome over here. So they couldn't, they couldn't all be there. And that short fall, if you like, was made up by Epaphroditus. He tried to, he tried to do everything, and, and it damaged his health. But I just want to say, verse 30, as I read that, you probably thought, it sounds like Paul's... Uh, it sounds like Paul's uh, criticising the Philippians there. Do you remember when it said, he made up what was lacking in your service to me? When I first read that, I thought, well, I mean, Paul's got a bit of a cob on. But it's not the case at all, because if, when we reach chapter 4, we'll see that Paul says, that you Philippians, I know you were concerned for me, I know you wanted to help, but you didn't have the opportunity. So it's like what we said before, they had, they had the desire to help Paul, he had the ability to help him, but he didn't have the opportunity. For whatever reason, God didn't bring that to pass. And the last, um, the last example uh, is, in, is in number 10, it's uh, in verse 12. We'll go back to verse 12 now. All this outworking of salvation activity God puts in us is to be done in fear and trembling. It's because these things in us are from God, that we have this huge responsibility to see that they flow out of us in our lives. This fear of God, you know, I mentioned this last time, this fear of God is no different from what was expected of the Hebrew people. In Psalm 2, it enjoins them to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It says. It's the same for us, friends. In our service for God, we're to find that sanctified balance between joy in God and fear of Him. It's a healthy, wonderful 
balance. So there you are, we've got ten references in the passage as indicators to what the outworking of our salvation shows would look like. And it's important to remember where the passage sits in the scriptures. We should always pay attention to the context, where it's located. And in chapter 1, uh, we've, already, we've already had Paul telling them to be of one mind. Okay, later on, he impresses on them the importance of humility, doesn't he? And putting them in the interest of other people first. So... What this means and what we're looking at today is that this is all a community project. It's a community project, and I mean the Christian community. And although this was the Christian community in Philippi, it applies to the Christian community here in this little corner of Norwich Community too. And as we take on board these things for, for, for ourselves, we're to, we're to understand we're not meant to look for it Improvements in ourselves in isolation to other people. All these characteristics are to be developed alongside other believers. God wants us to see, God wants to see us together and united at that. There's no little corner in the kingdom of God uh, where uh, lone wolf Christians can go and sit and do their own thing. There's no such place. So we grow, we grow as a church. And we don't just come closer to each other. We, we also draw near to God and in a way that he's prescribed. And friends, God's, uh, God's grace is uh, sufficient for all these things. It always will be. Everything I've spoken about today, if you like our duty, God's grace is sufficient for it all, and it always will be. I heard about uh, this uh, Methodist minister years ago, and he was in London, and he walked past the shop, and there's a big sign up saying, Amazing grace, supplies exhausted. Right? Supplies exhausted. So, was the shopkeeper announcing that the, this wonderful grace of God uh, I'd run out. Well, of course it wasn't. <coughs> Some of you will remember in the early 70s a pipe band in England made a record and one of the tracks on the record was uh, a rendition of the hymn Amazing Grace. Does anyone remember that? Uh, everyone was buying a record back in the 70s, Amazing Grace. And despite all the expectations of everyone in the music industry, this single went to number one, and it stayed there for, week, uh, for weeks and weeks. It was on the top spot, it was driving, driving people mad. Why have we got a hymn at the top of the charts? And the point being that that shop was simply announcing, wasn't it, that the supplies of the single had run out. So friends, the, 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 the warehouses of God's grace God's provision uh, will never run well. So by his grace, God is fully committed, fully consecrated to supplying you day by day with all you need to do as well. So keep on, friends, keep on leaning on him in prayer. Study his word, 
learn from other believers and enjoy this great honour, this great honour of expressing your salvation in the holy fear of God who is pleased to use you as an instrument of his good pleasure and glory. Amen.